Since the beginning of time, humans have been trying to figure out who they are and how they fit into the universe. Today's guest, cultural anthropologist Wade Davis, is going to take you on a surprising path to self-realization. Prepare to be amazed. This episode is brought to you by the Podcast Services Division at Lifestuff Media. Having your own podcast allows you to creatively reach all types of audiences, from clients to prospects, to your most loyal membership base. And by utilizing studio affiliates located around the world, coupled with quality remote recording capabilities, Lifestuff Media makes having a corporate podcast easier than ever before. Contact us for a no-obligation consultation at info at lifestuff.com or visit lifestuff.com to learn more. This is Life's Tough, but Explorers are Tougher. I'm your host, Richard Weiss. If you're new to Life's Tough, I'd like to welcome you and tell you a little about myself and the show. First of all, I love the outdoors. I always have and I always will. And I've also been surrounded by explorers my entire life. My father, Richard Weiss Sr., was the first man to solo the Pacific Ocean in an airplane. The New York Times called him the Lone Eagle of the Pacific. Some of my fondest memories were standing out on our lawn underneath the stars with my father telling me how explorers use the stars to navigate. I guess we talked about a few other things as well. And speaking of talking, I host a television show called Born to Explore, it's on PBS stations around the country, so please check it out. And finally, I've been president of the world-famous Explorers Club. Just about every great explorer of the 20th and 21st century has been a member, including Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Jane Goodall, Theodore Roosevelt. Some people say it's like Harry Potter's Hogwarts, only for adults. I've heard stories that would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. You see, explorers are the type of people who walk in space, go to the bottom of the ocean, and stand on the highest summits. Scratch the surface of any explorer, and you'll find they're all storytellers. This show is about their tales. Greetings to you wherever you are in the world, and I hope you're well. If you listen to our show with any kind of regularity, then you know the overarching theme has been the role of explorers as storytellers. So the big question is, who do explorers think is the best storyteller? The master, the person who's best at telling a story. And it's obviously a subjective uh, theme, but a name that always pops up on everybody's short list is cultural anthropologist Wade Davis. And first of all, the subject matter that he discusses is very, very interesting, often about people and cultures that many of us know little about and in many cases never even knew existed from the Yatamami tribes of the Amazon rainforest to shamans in the Himalayas to secret voodoo rituals in the Caribbean. He has given a voice and has been an advocate for disappearing languages and cultures and seems to find wisdom and beauty in cultures that Western society might deem as primitive. Wade Davis, welcome. Good to see you up there in Canada. 
Yeah, great to see you, Richard. Really wonderful to be with you. And, you know, by, by that introduction, one would think that you were raised by Tibetan monks and had tea that was brewed by rainwater. Is this the <laughs> case? Where Where is the little, you know, preformed Wade Davis grow up? Well, you know, I think I grew up, you know, in, in Canada, of course, but, um, you know, a couple of things. One is I've, uh, you know, I'm an Irish citizen and my family was all from Ireland. And I think storytelling is surely in the Irish blood. Uh, but, you know, it was some years ago, I, I hadn't really thought uh, about why or how I became a, a student of culture. Um, one, one, one simple explanation was I, I was an undergraduate at Harvard and having spent my first year mostly making trouble against the Vietnam War in a way that was lucky that no one noticed, um, uh, the deadline was the very next morning. I, by complete fluke, I had just come out of the Peabody Museum of Ethnology, having visited these exhibits for the first time, and with my head still whirling with these sort of visions of um, shaman and all the colors of the rainbow, uh, I ran into a friend in the street, and I said, Stuart, what are you going to major in tomorrow? It's a deadline. And he looked at me and said, anthropology. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, you read about Indians and like Forrest Gump. I said, that'll do. And that's how technically I became a student of anthropology. But I think there was a deeper, a deeper story, Richard, is that, you know, I, I was, my family was from the West. My, my grandfather was a, was a doctor in a, a, a lead zinc mining town in the Canadian Rockies. Uh, his life had been transformed by the First World War. He was a surgeon at the front. Uh, dealing with the white faces of the dead for four years and four months. My grandmother, this great Irish beauty, had been engaged to a French officer killed at the Marne. And after the war, uh, her kid's sister was squired off to Monaco uh, or Monte Carlo with this, by this rich Englishman who married her. And, and uh, my grandmother was taken back to this lead zinc mine in the Canadian Rockies by my grandfather. But, but um, then my father's life, I think, was indelibly marked by Hitler's war. You know, he was uh, studying at St. Mary's before the war. Something happened. We don't know. Uh, when he died, I discovered a, a pile of letters between my grandfather and the Canadian authorities in London before, um, during the Second World War. You know, where's Edmund? Is, is he schizophrenic? Is he a drug user? Is he this? And we know that our father got an honorable discharge, unfit for military uh, action in 1943, which was highly unusual because he was at that point in the Canadian Army and the Canadian Army was being trained for D-Day, right? So they weren't letting people out. Uh, and, uh, and then he finally, word comes to him, having disappeared underground for three years in London, that his parents had been killed in a car accident uh, by a drunk driver on Vancouver Island, and he gets compassionate leave. The point is that his life, in some sense, was ruined by the Second World War. But at any rate, we were living in Montreal when I was a little boy uh, at a time of the two solitudes, when French and English really weren't speaking to each other. And uh, if you remember, there was martial law, there were kidnappings, there were tanks in the streets of Montreal. It was a little bit like Northern Ireland for a time. And we lived in an English suburban community that was plunked like a carbuncle in the back of an old Francophone village that went back to the 17th century. And Richard, there was literally a boulevard, Cartier Boulevard, that divided the two communities, one from the other. And at the corner, there was a little shop where my mom would send me to get milk or cigarettes or whatever she needed. And I'd sit there on a stoop. It was owned by a Francophone couple, elderly. 
I'd look across that road and think, wow, there's a, right across that road's another language, another religion, another way of life. And I was dying to cross that road. And I did, ignoring all the voices of bigotry and bias, um, not from my family, uh, but rather from the community in general. And in a strange way, I've been crossing that road as an anthropologist since then all my life. You know, it's funny. Um, a book title, um, The Road Less Traveled, always comes to mind when I think about you. But I kind of think that not only was it the road less traveled, but in many cases, there wasn't a road that yeah, you, you've made a I, lot of choices that this would be the logical, normal progression. Right. And you've had the confidence or I, I don't know, I'm going to use the word confidence, but you you've always looked at things and say, hmm, there's an alternative narrative or something else. Well, you know, Richard, I think, you know, we all have done that, you know, I mean, look at you. I mean, look what you've accomplished. Um, you know, there was no blueprint for Richard Weiss, right? I mean, you created your, your life. I mean, and that, that actually is what I say to young people is your greatest creative challenge is to become the architect of your life. And we all know that in older age, uh, contentment comes to those who have done that and bitterness to those who look back on a life of decisions imposed upon them. You know, I don't, I had no inner, inner direction. I was a, like everybody else, a confused, uncertain kid. Uh, my parents to a fault gave me no direction. I was free to do whatever I wanted. Uh, bless them. They spent half of their savings to send me to, to university at Harvard, knowing full well that every day I was in Cambridge, widened the social gap between us, which was incredibly generous. My mother worked all year, you know, to save up money to allow me to go to Columbia as a schoolboy at 14. They they did so much for me, but I, I never got direction from them. Um, in retrospect, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I was happily incapable of compromise. And, you know, uh, Jim Whitaker, who's a great friend of all of ours, the first American to climb Everest, famously said that if you're not living on the edge when you're young, you're taking up too much space. And uh, Terence McKenna quipped that, you know, you know, the great lesson of life is you come to the edge of the precipice and you leap off the cliff and you land not on rocks, but on a feather bed. The world exists not to beat you down, but to lift you up. And one of the things I always say to young people is that life is not linear. They're always taught, even through the chrono chronological progression of grades in school, that, you know, if you don't go from A to B, if you skip C and D, you'll never get to the rest of the alphabet. Well, we all know that life, as Joseph Campbell says, is, you know, is made up of these serendipitous moments where you've got to make a choice. And the most important thing is that you own those choices. You're not looking over your shoulder to your parents, to your peers, to the society, uh, and that's how you become the architect of your own life. And as I faced those choices, I just found it impossible to think of a profession that I would try on like a coat for the rest of my life. I couldn't think of a box into which to place an entire existence. And uh, that kind of gave me the idea early, early on that a job, uh, not a job, but a vocation is just a metaphor. It's just a, it's, it's a lens through which to experience the world and only for a time. I mean, you know, kids come out of college all desperate to get a job, you know, and they should be careful because the word job actually comes from the medieval French word gobert, meaning to devour. And uh, the word work comes from the Anglo-Saxon root to kind of create or inspire, or, or, and it has a better ring to it. And I, I always say to young people, never have a job, avoid that at all costs, but work 
harder than anyone else and you'll get ahead. I mean, young people need to be opportunists, not in terms of being schemers. And you've done this all your life, Richard. It's, I mean, you know, I have weight, but you know, the, you know, the, the thing that strikes me and, and I don't think you give yourself um, credit in this regard, you did make a lot of alternative choices and, and went and went into directions that would have really scared the crap out of most people. But the one yeah. thing you have been endowed with, was to me um, a really fertile mind to be able to to somehow synthesize what's around you. You've been given the ability to speak really well. You know, when those neurons are flipping out, you're not only able to uh, verbalize in a very elegant way what you see, but the other sort of God-given creation you have been given is also the ability to pen things. You just, in fact, mm -hmm. uh, wrote something that's been viral in Rolling Stone about the unraveling of America. So, you know, I, I sort of wonder if Wade Davis, if he would have been a medical doctor or any of these other things would have had the same level of success just because you're innately smart. I, I don't know. I, you know, I think, I think we're, you know, there's always an element of luck in these things, isn't there? I mean, I, um, the one thing I, you know, my sister, Richard, there's been a number of biographical films done about me and, and uh, other which is not reason. normal way just so you know yeah, well anyway but my sister always says what people never get is how tough i am and what yeah. she means by that is not tough in a you know a kind of macho way but rather that you know no one was more desperate at the age of 22 to know what their destiny was i, I wasn't interested in fame money but i want i had so much energy so much in retrospect potential and i was like most young people desperate to know where that would become manifest right and uh when she says tough it's because no one had more of that she said and no one held off you know and in, in other words i didn't compromise i didn't slip away into law school or medical school you know i gave my destiny time to find me now i i, I almost blew it i mean this is a, a good important lesson i was i came out of harvard you know quite precocious i had spent two years in the amazon i was a young botanical explorer done very well had a good record went off to Canada, didn't quite know what to do, wasn't sure if I wanted to be a botanist, took a job at the lowest rung of a logging camp, lied about my credentials to be able to do that, worked in the bush for a year, and I had to do something. So I applied This was in Haida Gwaii? Yeah, in Haida Gwaii, yeah. And uh, uh, th that's another important lesson. You know, nothing is beneath you. Nothing is a waste of time unless you make it so. You know, my poor father had spent his fortune to send me to Harvard. And what do I do with that degree? I take the lowest rung a job in a logging camp. But 10 years later, when the battles of the woods happened, uh, of all the environmentalists fighting for the old growth forests of British Columbia, I was the only one that no one could ever say, I don't know what I'm talking about, right? And uh, in fact, this is an aside, you'll love this as a television uh, uh, veteran yourself. I was set up with the head of the logging union, uh, IWA, the second most powerful man in Canada at the time, Jack Monroe, and we were both set up to be antagonists on this live uh, uh, broadcast from uh, national television, unknowing that the other was being recruited. And, and Mr. Monroe was furious, right? That he was gonna be set up with this young whippersnapper and and um, he was dripping sweat. He was this massive man. And just before we went to air, I leaned over and, and you'll appreciate this, Richard. I said, Mr. Monroe, I'd just like to thank you because your union put me through university. And he couldn't believe it. Right. And he said, where'd you log? 
Dean and Bay? What was your local name? And what was the TFL name? You know? And then I went head on air to say exactly what I was going to say about the corruption of the logging industry, all of which he knew damn well to be true. And he couldn't say it, right? And at the end of the interview, before the interview was over, still on live television, Mr. Monroe had his arm around my shoulder on TV and was saying, you know, I don't speak as well as this young kid because I didn't get to go to university. But I'm telling you, this is the kind of young man my union makes for the province. You know, it was a wonderful moment. But right? Wade, you know, I'll tell you something about that in an aside, and you probably have never thought this. The reason why you and him had that connection is that you spoke the same language. Like right. every industry has a language, which sort of brings you full circle into your specialty, the whole idea of preserving cultural languages and voices, because when we understand um, to some degree what that that talk is from other cultures, that that like and the ability to appreciate what they do is uh, is is probably granted. So. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I always, more to I, that I, moment. yeah, I always sort of say, Richard, that we, you know, we preserve jam, we don't preserve cultures. I mean, cultures are always dancing with new possibilities for life. You know, it's not as if there's archaic, uh, you know, vestigial voices of humanity. You know, one of the important things about storytelling is to have something to say that the world needs to hear. That's what Hemingway said was the essence of it. He also said that anyone who thinks that writing is easy is either a bad writer or a liar. You know, and I think for I've written 23 books and they're all hard. Right. Uh, and, um, and and at least I found that to maintain that that energy, you have to have passion and you have to care about. I mean, all my books are about one way or another addressing either environmental injustice or social injustice or, you know, or something, something that, you know, and, and, and this is, again, an important lesson I got from my dad, Richard. Uh, my dad was not a re religious man. But he profoundly believed in good and evil. And he'd just say to you, you know, uh, son, there's good and evil. Take your side and get on with it. And what he was really saying is that this Christian idea that, you know, good's going to vanquish evil uh, ain't going to happen. And we know it ain't going to happen. And the Buddhists have a different idea, you know, or the Vedic scriptures even. You know, Lord Krishna was asked that obvious question. Um, you know, if God's all powerful, why does he allow evil to exist in the universe? Well, if you ask that question in medieval France, you got burned at the stake as a heretic. But when Lord Krishna was asked that same question, he responded to thicken the plot. In other words, good and evil exist side by side. And when you realize that, you can embrace kind of the path of the pilgrim. You know, the pilgrim is not going somewhere. The destination is not a place, but a state of mind. And when you realize that good and evil are going to continue to coexist and you take your side, then you just push. And you don't care if you get up that hill. You don't care if you win. You win some, you lose some, but you become like a mountain that the, the wind cannot shake, devoted to that path of justice. And that may sound a little sanctimonious, but it's been my motivation. And it what allows me at the age of 67 to be as innocent and keen and idealistic and energetic about these issues as I was when I was 20, with a little bit more humility, obviously, that age, age gives you. Uh, and I and I think this is um, you know what's what's driven me. I mean, one of the one of the things is that I learned as a, as a kind of scion of the of the bourgeoisie, if you will. Um, you know, when we grew up, how many times, Richard, did you hear someone say, "Oh, that's Sally. She's really creative. 
oh, the Beatles are so creative. The implication being that you're not, right? Um, the implication that, that creativity exists and you either have it or you don't, that's not true. Creativity is never the motivation of action. It's a consequence of action. You can't be creative if you don't do. And the thing that I thought, I thought creativity belonged to someone else until I heard the opening notes of Sergeant Pepper in 1967. And I thought, wow, that's what words can do. And I became enchanted with words, right? And But at the same time, I never thought of myself as being a writer or going to be a writer. But then circumstances intervened. I, I was doing my, you know, I, I had done all this work, uh, six years in the Amazon, uh, collected 6,000 numbers, 24,000 specimens. Botany began to feel like collecting hay to me. I wanted something more intellectual. My great mentor, Schultes, summoned me to his office one day and asked me innocently if I was interested in going down to the Caribbean island nation of Haiti, infiltrating the secret societies to secure the drugs used to make zombies. And of course, I said yes, and having no idea it would consume five years of my life. But the, but, but the interesting part of the story is that that project was a serious project. The, the director of it, Nathan Klein, had won two Lasker Awards. Uh, and there was an unknown benefactor who wrote the checks. And if I needed $10,000 by Wednesday, I just had to call uh, his uh, apartment in New York by, by Monday night. I never knew where the money was coming from until one day I was doing a debriefing in his penthouse. And this kind of toad-like figure was in the corner. It was David Merrick, the Broadway producer, who had just made a fortune with 42nd Street. Do you remember? Yep. And uh, he loved the theatricality of voodoo. I actually took David Merrick to Haiti to voodoo ceremonies. And, and then within a 24-hour period, Dr. Klein died during routine heart surgery. And I and, and Dr. Uh, Mr. Merrick had a debilitating stroke. So I went from being flushed with money to having none. I applied to all these agencies, but they take so long to decide. And instead, I walked off the street to a literary agent in London, the name of which had been given to me by Sebastian Snow, this eccentric journalist at the, who I had guided, so-called, through the Darien Gap years before. And uh, I walked out with a book contract. But then I had to write a book. I used them. First thing I did, you, you know me, I took a girlfriend to Paris. <laughs> and and, and they, and then with the money left over, I finished the That's research. That's the libido wade. Yeah. And then, I, and then, of course, I had to write a book. And I hadn't written anything but scientific papers and letters and, and a journal, you know, all my life. And um, I wrote two chapters. I had malaria and hepatitis and it was pretty feverish uh, that I sent to Simon & Schuster. I thought it was the best thing since the Bible. And they, they sent it back and said, try again. And, I, and I, a friend of mine put me on her farm in Virginia, my, my dear friend Lavinia Courier, and said, just write, Wade. And, and literally, out of necessity, I taught myself to write. And uh, literally, I mean, you know, I, I had books, Richard, by my bedside tape, but by, by my desk, you know, Hemingway for Dialogue, uh, T.E. Lawrence, you know, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, that great opening line, some of the evil in this tale may have been inherent in our circumstances. Lawrence Durrell for Exotic characters, Isaac Dennison for landscape. I never copied. I never plagiarized. I just had a great story to tell. I had to figure out how to tell it. And whenever I was stuck, I would just stop and pick up one of the masters and just read. And that's how I ended up writing The Serpent of the Rainbow in seven months. Uh, it was edited in, in one day. Which brought you to told, Hollywood next. And, 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 and again, and suddenly I'm a writer, right? Well, that's and it. also in Hollywood, but you know, wait, you know, just to comment on a couple of things that you said there, you know, the idea that 
everybody's got created creativity is 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 you know yes it's a fair statement but i do feel that genetics or or some god-given thing makes somebody able to look at something and put a pen and draw it as exactly as they see it without any training and you know the serend yes serendipity plays a role but there's also an element of you daring people not well, to you know, I mean, I mean, there, there, there's no question. I mean, you know, uh, you know, one of the things I think one, one thing is that this, this inability to compromise. You know, you may not know where you want to go, but you won't compromise. You know, I mean, you know, every time any human being makes a change in their life, uh, someone is there to try to stop it because everybody's comfortable with you as you are. You know, if you announced to the the members uh, who love you so much at the Explorers Club after all you've done for us that you're suddenly going to give it all up and go be a stockbroker, uh, we'd all be saying, no, Richard, don't do that, you know? Um, and, and and so I think it's really important, that, you know, like in my life, it's like, why do you have to go to Harvard? What's wrong with UBC? Wait a minute, you're at Harvard. You're supposed to be a lawyer. What's the a sweatshirt? Antibol? The sweatshirt, Wade, man. You know, it's, <laughs> wear that sweatshirt. <laughs> but, the, but the thing is, you know, um, you, you know, you, 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 you just you just have to have confidence to, to, to try it and ignore all those voices. You know, um, uh, you know, every time I've made a change, um, people have said, why do you want to do how can you do that? You're you're doing doing that. And, I, you know, I, I, and I've had my weak moments. I'll tell you a funny story. When I uh, when I did apply at one point to law school and graduate school and bought me as if they were the same thing, I was so desperate at the age of 23. Uh, and my sister was articling at this law firm, this posh law firm. And I went to pick her up and this elderly receptionist said to me, are you Karen's brother, Wade? I said, yeah, yeah. You're the one who just came back from the Amazon. Uh-huh. You eat all these weird plants. I said, well, that's me. And, and she said, you follow me. And she took me back through the law library where she had set up a ladder that rose to a lithograph of a British solicitor from the 17th century, all hook-nosed and fat and wigs and everything. And she bellowed up from the base of the ladder, is that you? And I, no. this I said, no, I came down the ladder, Richard walked to her front desk, picked up the phone, called the law school, retracted my successful application and went off to work at Harvard with Schultes, you know, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I think I've been fortunate, you know, I mean, look, I'm, I'm not belittling the, 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 the um, uh, you know, the, the, the talent that I have, or, you know, a lot of it, man, comes from hard work, you know, I mean, when I wrote Into the Silence, which won the Samuel Johnson Prize, which is a, at that time was a top literary prize for nonfiction in the entire English language, I mean, that book took uh, 12 years to write. Uh, I bought 600 books just for that one book. We visited 57 archives. I set out to find out where each of the 26 men who were on those three early British expeditions in 21, 22, and 24 had been every single day of the Great War. And I found out, right, literally to the day. So, I mean, a lot of this is just really hard work, you know, and, and, um, and I work all the time. Yeah. My I, life you know, I, I know you do it and you're very good at not belittling people. We we've had plenty of pri private conversations. We're almost out of time, but I do have two other questions for you. Yeah. So there's one thing about being the I'm young. Sorry, before you, sorry, Richard, before you jump in there, what you just said is so important. You know, a lot of writers use people, you know, um, to, to be witty or to be, I never do that. Everybody in my books comes out 
bigger than themselves. And a lot of this is because I truly love people. It sounds naive, but you know, people ask an anthropologist, how do you break into a community? How do you transform yourself from outsider to guest to friend? Uh, and it's always empathy and love. It's, it's the same quality that would make you welcome in someone's house at Thanksgiving. You know, a willingness to eat what's put in front of you, sleep where you're asked to sleep, self-deprecating humor, compassion, love, whatever. It's love, man. And I love people. And the one thing that I'm really good at, the only real skill that I can say I've got, I can go into any cultural scene anywhere in the world on any place and pick up like antenna the vibes of how one is supposed to behave. How do you how do you break down that barrier that exists between you and the people that you want to be welcomed as a guest? I I do that. And I, I, do I recognize really that you, but I, I think what has allowed you to do that is that, you know, insecurity is such a driving mechanism of people and people are more or less thinking about how they feel. And I think that your self-confidence and um, innate ability to have empathy allows you not to, it's not about you. And as mm -hmm. soon as you remember it's not about you, then you actually have a better experience and are more attractive. And well, you know, Richard, you know, one way, one way to, it's a great point and very insightful, my friend, because one thing I try to do even as a writer is, is never use, and I, my first book was a novel, a, a, you know, a, a first attempt at writing, but in my recent book, Magdalena, 400 pages long, I actually checked and the word I appears in the text uh, less than 100 times in a 400 page book of travels. In other words, you keep the focus, you know, to, to, to center on self and travel writing is like false, uh, false, uh, 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 um, claims to the explorer, you know, like, you know, exaggerated. I mean, that's what writing's all about. We're in the selfie era where people want to beat their chest and say, hey, yeah. you know, that's me with the uh, Matterhorn or me with the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you brought up Hemingway earlier. Hemingway might have made the snows of Kilimanjaro. It really wasn't about Kilimanjaro. That was the setting and it was about yeah, other right. things. So well, I remember the story. We you know one of our dear friends, Johann Reinhardt, who's sure. a great friend of the Explorers Club. Um, um, and uh, Johann and I both became explorers and residents at the same time in that first class at the National Geographic. And we always joke because he's, he's my closest friend there and uh, with Chris Rainier. And uh, the, 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 the young kids called us up, you know, from the marketing people for us to send them all the video and, and, and still footage of ourselves in the field. And I, I said, what are you talking about? And I realized that in my entire life, I had maybe five pictures of myself in the field, right? And the, and the young uh, kids, you know, were saying like, well, did you really go to the Amazon? It was just like kind of inconceivable. And they said the same thing to Johan, right? But, you know, I, I, I think we, 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 you know, this is a change. There's nothing wrong with the selfie thing. I mean, you know, it was a different generation, you know, different expression. It. It's a different expression. Hey, wait, I mean, we're we just about out of time. And, you know, we started this whole thing about storytelling. And I'm kind of curious over the years, because I know you've been to TED Talks or lectures. Is there anybody to you that's sort of come front of mind that you just think, wow, this is a great, not just a great storyteller, but the best? Uh, Gary Snyder, the poet, has always been my my hero. Uh, in fact, I, I I I once not too long ago 
packaged up every single book I've ever written and sent it in a box to him and and just with a note that said Gary you wrote every one of these books wow and, what a compliment uh, and I remember when I was a kid having written nothing um I I had this hippie girlfriend we had this hippie van that looked like a Louisiana bordello of course you had a hippie girlfriend I wouldn't expect <laughs> anything less from you Wade and we drove down to California I said I'm on a mission to go meet Gary Snyder and uh he lives up in the Sierra and it's hard to find him. The closer you get, the more uh, uh, protective the neighbors are. And I finally drove this van into his garden and there he was, you know, working in his garden. I began to sort of uh, uh, effusively apologize for just what I had done, ruining his day. And um, he said the most beautiful things, anyone who can find me uh, deserves to be here. And then we went in for tea and uh, he had done his undergraduate thesis at Reed on a Haida myth. And I just come back from working on Haida Gwaii. We actually had a lot to talk about, but it was just like one of those encounters that made me feel like I was someone. And this is a nice point, you know, to wind up on is that, you know, I answer every email I get from a kid uh, because in the time that it takes you to, you know, delete an email, you can write back and say, hey, Joey, great to hear from you, your friend Wade. Because when kids write, you or me, you're the president of the Explorers Club for so long. They're not really saying, you know, they'll write you and say, can you get me a job in exploration, doctor or Mr. W you know, no. What they're really saying is, am I somebody? If I reach out through the ether to this person who I admire, will they say that I'm somebody by answering me? And if you don't, it's not a neutral act. It's, it's a slap in their face, you know. And I just remember these moments in my youth where somehow somebody arranged for me to meet with Gary Snyder. Well, I went and met with Gary Snyder. But once, once, for example, you know, Dylan Ripley, who was the head of the Smithsonian, this friend of mine, Lavinia, actually, said, I want you to meet the secretary of the Smithsonian. And I was a Canadian. I was so naive. I thought that meant a secretary at the Smithsonian. <laughs> right? So I go, to, I go to the castle in jeans and a t-shirt in the middle of the summer. And, uh, you know, they keep taking me deeper and deeper into the inner sanctum. And suddenly I realize I'm with the Dylan Ripley, you know, the head of the whole Smithsonian. And he was so kind to me. And we, he marched me through the dining hall. I was just like 20. And everybody was looking at us, all these scientists. Who's this kid? And we just talked about birds in Nepal, which was his passion. But that day, that man made me feel like I was somebody. And I later became really good friends of his daughter, Sylvia. And, and we always told and chris addison good friends of ours from dc and i always told mrs ripley when she was still alive you know this the, your father your, your husband did this for you know that's what you need to do that's the role of the elder you know is, is to is to recognize that the teacher the student is as important as a teacher in the lineage of knowledge the people coming behind you are more important than the ones ahead of you if you will in in, in the kind of trajectory of life and in a, a way as as we both head towards that elder or elder statesman role, I can't help but think um, all the lives you have touched and people you've never even actually met but have read your works. And um, I don't say this to a lot of people, but I, I, I truly believe the world is a better place for having your spirit somewhere floating out there, you know, even if it influences us to evolve spiritually as people, you know, you, you have lent that to us. So thank you so much for being on the show today. I, I You know I enjoy talking to you. <laughs> great to be with you, Richard. I'm a big fan. Every great expedition has to come to an end. But that doesn't mean we can't stay in touch. 
Send us your favorite expedition pictures and tell us about your most memorable journeys, large or small. All right, get something to write with. Here are my coordinates. www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. One more time, www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. That's it for today. Hope to see you out on the trail.